Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw of The Homes Report. Today's show looks at some cultural trends that are or will impact not only marketers, but employers on several levels. Um, Both of our guests today are based out of sunny L.A., Later on today's show, we'll have a USC professor talk about transmedia story of telling. But first, uh, we'll look at generational archetypes and demographics that are emerging around um, Generation Z, um, which I suppose they've arrived because the New York Times has done an article on them, and you know you're real when the New York Times has done has done a, 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 a trend piece on you. Um, so we have Angela Fernandez from Ketchum here, who has done extensive research on Generation Z. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, millennials sort of up until this point have kind of been spoiled because they've been showered with media analysis and examination, and it almost seems like their day in the sun is over now that um, this sort of examination has sort of shifted towards Generation Z. So let me tell you some of the quotes that I've seen to describe Generation Z, and I'm sure that in your research you've probably come across many of these as well. Um, the next big retail disruptor, the weight of savings, the weight of saving the world and fixing our past mistakes is on their small shoulders. Um, millennials on steroids. So, um, so, I, so maybe you could kind of help us give us a clearer picture of this generation. And let's start by talking about what what's sort of the generational parameters of this cohort. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. You know, millennials have been the most studied generation in history and you know over the past decade I think you know we've been watching Millennials closely and trying to figure out what makes them tick but then you know along the way Gen Z has been you know forming strong opinions and and growing and kind of solidifying their own networked influence so um, it's it's a generation that everybody's you know starting to kind of look at and see what is this generation going to come up and do just as Millennials kind of turned the marketing and communications world on its head um, I think everybody's looking at Gen Z as the, the next generation consumer. Um, and so when we look at Gen Z, what, what I think about is, you know, I think a lot of people find it surprising that millennials are no longer teenagers. Um, they are in their 20s and mid-30s even. And when I think about Gen Z, it's really just easy to say they are today's kids and teenagers. They're 18 years and younger this year in 2015. All right. So, and so, yeah, that's what I've heard is like, yeah, it's 1995 all the way, um, born through about five years ago. So born about, you know, 1995 to 2010. Um, so here's something, here's a question I have. So, you know, I've heard many people, including maybe some of my peers complain about, you know, there was Gen X and then there was millennials. And at one point there was this Gen Y that was sort of this bridge transitory generation, um, that didn't quite identify with Gen X and didn't quite identify with millennials. Um, and they sort of got sucked into either being, you know, regrouped as either Gen X or millennials, um, even though they, they sort of kind of felt, you know, they felt lost in between these two generations. So I, I, that makes me wonder about, about this next group, given the rate of change is so fast in today's environment, right? I mean, we see, I mean, there's technologies that are, you know, nascent in the next two to three years that's going to really change how people engage with the world around them, um, you know, and the ones that have already done so. So is it fair to clump someone who's 18 right now with somebody who's a four-year-old right now? I mean, because we don't even understand what world events are going to unfold for that four-year-old in its formative years to really shape their their worldview. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I think one of the things that we look at is 
um, when you're studying a generation or cohort, you can't really just look at one big chunk of you know 15 to 20 years because the you know their frame of references are going to be so different. So we have to look at not only their life stage, which I think millennials taught us you know, quite a bit about, but also their mindset, which I think Gen Z is going to teach us quite a bit about as well. And, and, and you said it, you know, there's the speed of change is happening faster than ever before. And um, it's this idea of templosion or the speed of change in which very large things are happening in increasingly compressed amounts of time. I mean, and no other area is, is changing faster than technology. So if you think about even just something like the ubiquity of mobile phones from going from brick phone to flip phone to smartphone in such a short period of time. All of that technology that's changing so rapidly um, is, you know, is making the, this very idea of generations start to shift so that we're going to start to see, you know, in, instead of generations being grouped in 15 to 20 years, we're going to start to see them refreshing every two to three years now because of that change and that impact on the acceleration of time really fueled by that technology. Because you're right, um, someone who's four years old is going to have a much different point of reference than someone who is 17 or 18 years old. And I mean, technology is obviously one aspect of that, but there's also like these unforeseen events that can really shape a generation. I mean, if you think about the millennials and the impact that September 11th, had on their sense of purpose and their um, this idea that they did they wanted to to impact some kind of change around the world. I know um, Paul Holmes was recently talking about how he remembers that time frame where he just saw so many people leaving um, you know their more traditional job environments and, and saying, "Look, I I realize I need to make a difference. I want to do something to help make the world a better place." And, and so there's those unforeseen events that, you know, that are going to unfold over the next few decades, um, you know, whether it's the economy, whether it's, you know, geopolitical events, whether it's who's elected, who's, you know, president in 2016 that will um, impact a lot of this this group. I think you and I were talking about how, um, you know, you, you you're, you're, I think you mentioned your, your children, it, it dawned on them that they have only known a black president. Right, right, exactly. I mean, my daughter came up and said, I just figured something out. Obama's <laughs> the first black president that we've ever had. How could that even be? And then we said, well, guess what else? There hasn't been a female president. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her jaw just hit the floor. So I, I think their frame of reference is very much going to be, you know, based on the, you're right, the events that happen in their lifetime that we can't even foresee. Right, right. So there's, I mean, so technology is one piece of this. Here's another element of that. And you and, and, you and I have talked about this before is, um, is culture, right? I mean, like the impact, A, of, of parents um, and the way, you know, what what parents, how they sort of shape and influence or we like to believe are able to shape and influence our children, right? And then, um, and then also just like cultural, right? I mean, this is a, especially in the U.S., I mean, we're an incredibly diverse um, nation. I mean, it, you know, if you're growing up in a, in a Latino household or an Asian American household, I mean, how do, are these little nuances impacting this generation as, as well? You know, I, I think about you know, this, what I love about studying Gen Z is I think they are watching all of us very closely. Um, and now they have this ability to process all of this information that is coming at them with really uber speed. And they're able to kind of decipher and interpret that into their own path. So, um, like I said, they, they're watching us very closely. They're learning from um, our triumphs 
results and they're learning from our failures. And I think that they are doing it with just this really unique ability to process this fast and continuous delivery of information that they have been exposed to since birth. So, I mean, think about things about you know, their, um, from their preferences on social media to way they, the, their conservative approach to, um, to life. And I don't mean conservative politically, I just mean conservative more thinking about um, you know, wanting to have this uh, sense of stability because they, they did, they too grew up in, you know, the recession and may have seen, you know, their parents struggle or family or neighbors lose their homes. So the, that kind of sense of unease has really created this quest for stability. So we are starting to see, if you look at just a, a kind of a general um, spectrum of characteristics that Gen Z is, is showing is things that, you know, they have a mindset that's much more cautious and realistic and, and more pragmatic in their approach to life. Mm -hmm. So you, going back to what I had, had the observation that was made between the, the transition from Gen X and, and millennials, like, I mean, I think there are, there's a large cohort of people who don't identify as either one of those and sort of feel like they were, they were sort of lost. Um, Similarly, as we transition from millennial to Gen Z, is is this a transitional? Um, you know, is this an evolution, or are we just throwing out the millennial playbook and you know suddenly here's the Gen Z playbook? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's um, it's very much a transition. I don't think you know one of the things that I was really studying was um, that very question as you know as marketers and communicators. Um, is this something where we need to start all over because we've just finally figured out what makes millennials tick? And I, I don't think this is about throwing out your millennial marketing strategy. It's very much an evolution. It's very much a transition um, because they, you know, Gen Z, I think, is very much learning from their millennial, um, older millennial siblings. Um, they are very much understanding, you know, we take a look at social media specifically, you know, for millennials, it was just this very, social media was novel. It was this experience and experiment in connection. But for Gen Z, you know, they really grew up in a time when they saw firsthand that backlash and the repercussions of their millennial siblings really dealing with, you know, negative sides of overexposure. So for them, you know, that just an example, they never got to play in that shiny, innocent phase of social media. They experienced things like data breaches and cyberbullying and online mm -hmm. pedophiles, which is a lot of scary stuff. So, um, you know, their parents also became more involved in their social media, um, in their social media lives. So I, I think when we look at that, it, it's, it's becoming an evolution. They're, they're very much learning from millennials and adopting some of their principles and characteristics but really starting to carve their own path and show their own preferences as well. Yeah, and you mentioned millennial siblings, but I mean, really, I mean, if, if the millennial, if the, if the upper end of millennial is 35, and if the lower end of Gen Z is five, then in many cases, we're talking about millennial parents, right? I mean, they have a millennial parent and a Gen Z um, offspring in some cases, it's not even siblings. Yeah, and I think I mean siblings in quotes as in, you know, their uh, generational siblings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... A couple of other things I wanted to touch on, and one of them is this sort of this idea of a visual vocabulary. And you know, we have been hearing this in our industry for ages now at this point, right? I mean, um, that this this newer generation sort of communicates differently, and yet our industry is so anchored and married to text. And you know, if you're in B two B marketing, then that's that is likely in, in many areas still true. But if you're looking at consumer marketing. Um, things are really starting to to move more in that visual direction. So, what have you absorbed about this um, 
about this generation. I, in, one of the things that I heard, and I don't know if you've probably heard the same thing, is, you know, if millennials were into emoticons, this, you know, Gen Z is into gifts. I mean, it's not just that they want a little smiley. I mean, they need, um, they need sort of a moving picture to really that really encompasses encompasses an emotion or, um, or you know, a phrase or you know, whether it's you know that's awesome or um, sorry or I'll catch you later. Like they don't just want to write it out. They actually want a moving picture that really communicates that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things with that that you know, um, Gen Z is just growing up in this time of information information overload, but. We know from research that their brains are being rewired to be able to take in and absorb all of that content. So we're seeing that they're able to multitask on even up to six screens at a time, whether it's in their TV, their smartphone, their tablet, their laptop, their desktop. Um, and you know, we're also seeing that some studies have shown that the average attention span of youth has gone from 12 seconds to eight. So that's an eight-second filter to process and, and pay attention to what they want to and when. So that means that you know they are expecting to be stimulated at all times. They are um, living in this on-demand world. And I think when we think about you know marketer, marketing and communications, it's it's really about brevity is best. We do need to keep it short, but we do need to keep it visual. Um, and then I think the other thing you know, for this generation is you know we is moving from um, information that's believable to them. I, I think with millennials, they were transformative in terms of marketing because they forced marketers to move from transactional to emotional and be really human. But that's now, you know, somewhat table stakes. And you know, brands know they have to connect emotionally to be even part of that consideration set. But for Gen Z, because they've been immersed in this this technology world for so long, and from birth. They so we just had a bit of a technical difficulty. We lost Angela for just a moment. Um, we have terrible weather here in San Francisco, so it could be it could be that. But but we've got Angela back, and so Angela, I think we lost you right around when you were talking about um, for Gen Z, they've merged their offline and their online personas. Yeah. So when you think about they have this symbiotic relationship with technology and and their online world and offline world is all the same world. That digital world is really affecting and shaping their cognition and perception and emotions, and it's also impacting their relationship with brands. So um, they're, they're used to being inspired emotionally, and they do expect to be inspired emotionally, but they also expect invention and innovation from brands. Um, you know, I, I think they need to have uh, their you know, messages and information that are grounded in proof and give them a reason to believe because they have a smartphone right in their hands and they can fact check anything. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was in one of the thing that you mentioned was how pragmatic this generation is. I mean, um, I think with the with millennials, we always sort of talked about, you know, the triple bottom line, you know, there's profits, people and purpose. So how has that um, evolved with with Gen Z? I think you know they, like I said, they're they're taking a much more conservative approach to life. And you know, if millennials were the generation that pushed back marriage and home buying and kids, and you know, they were the ones who really reimagined what adulthood and, and success could look like. Um, but I think for Gen Z, they they are starting to kind of flip that that script again. Um, you know, they, like I said, because you know they've been growing up in the recession, um, they may have seen you know some of their family or, or neighbors or some struggle. They they are looking to kind of settle down 
a little bit more. So um, we see them prizing things like owning a family home or saving and managing their money really responsibly or even finding this holistically fulfilling job. Um, and we're even starting to see like vices, you know, traditional vices like um, teenage um, drug use or alcohol use or all in the decline because this generation is much less susceptible to those types of things. Well, that's um, interesting. So we're, mm. Yeah, we're starting to see just a little bit more, you know, a, a generation that's more realistic and mm. pragmatic. And it's not about this American dream that is perfect. Um, they're looking for products and messaging that are reflecting reality, not just a perfect life, because I think their American dream is really rooted in these ideas of self-direction and ingenuity and independence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I, I, you know, I wonder what that also means. I mean, oh, two things. I mean, one is that, I mean, right now, I mean, they're about 17 or 18, right? So we, we don't know how, you know, their expectations are on marriage, how that'll play out right into their 20s yet. But this is what you're sort of seeing in, in surveys and research that they're actually prioritizing that more than more than millennials did. Um, the, the other question is, is what does this mean for employers? And, and the, the interesting thing here, right, is that Many of these millennials who sort of really did help sort of reshape the workplace, um, they, much more of an emphasis on flexibility, on, um, you know, being able to work wherever, whenever, um, kind of the, the work-life integration, I guess. These millennials are now, many of them are in management positions where they'll be managing many of these Gen Z folks in the next few years. So how, what should employers do to sort of brace for the, the, this? And I would think it, it would actually be less jarring considering that fact that, like I said, millennials will be in many cases managing Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that in, in kind of the study that I've been doing the last you know, several months over, over the past year is this idea of... Um, entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship uh, among Gen Z and, and how that's a little bit different from Millennials. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that, that social entrepreneurship is, is one of the most popular career choices among Gen Z. Um, and I had a colleague who was uh, touring uh, a college, d different college campuses with her son, and she said that's the first thing that they were, you know, um, that the first thing that they were communicating to the students is they have these social entrepreneurship programs that give them these real life experiences um, in the world. And, and I think it's interesting because I think this generation, um, you know, they, they want to make the world a better place. So we may see something like seeking out multiple but temporary careers or, or micro gigs instead of long haul careers because if they believe that they're going to make the world a better place they're going to look for um, you know smaller temporary jobs that are going to let them feel more holistically fulfilled and um, give them an opportunity to jump from job to job and do something really great at each of those jobs mm -hmm. yeah that's um, that's interesting because it sounds like I mean that started with the millennials right and they were they sort of develop this reputation for changing jobs every three to five years. Um, and it sounds like this will sort of, it sounds like this trend will be sort of more intensified with Gen Z, who, I mean, I guess the micro gig might, might emerge. Um, the, the other, I mean, in this whole idea of, of being entrepreneurial, I mean, that partly is, you know, I guess millennials sort of made entrepreneurialism as cool as it is. I mean, you know, they were on the cover of magazines as entrepreneurs. I mean, mainstream magazines, not even just like entrepreneurial magazines or business magazines. And, um, and then, you know, this idea of the entrepreneur was sort of coined, you know, with millennials. Um, you think so that appetite. So, so, we're, so cause, because when you said that Gen Z was more conservative, um, I didn't know if that meant that they were looking for 
more sort of stable work environments and entrepreneurship, which the millennials really sort of gravitated towards? Yeah, I think it's for, for Gen Z. Um, I think the entrepreneurialism is about, uh, they view it more as a necessity than something that is, is cool. I think for them, the necessity is that they actually do want to make their world a better place. And it doesn't entirely have to be the world a better place, but really their world a better place. Um, and and that's where they want to feel holistically fulfilled, both in their personal life and in their professional life. And there doesn't have to be as much of a hard line between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where we'll start to see a little bit of shift in the workplace is that, um, you know, they're, the goal and the real desire for Gen Z is intrinsically trying to do something better for the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wrap up on, on, on a question that you know the the there was there was some amount of millennial fatigue just because you said they were one of the you know most studied generation or probably the most studied generation um and to the point where i mean it just sort of became shorthand for young person right and and to where it's such a diverse group and it became sort of i remember talking to some some cultural researchers that were just saying you know we've actually scrapped millennial almost entirely because we've really looking we're looking more at like sort of psychodemographics because it, it, there was just not enough cohesion um, in this group for us to really make meaningful insights around that. And, and you know, I, I think that's sort of an extreme example. Obviously, I mean, many marketers still sort of, you know, target millennials. So, but what can we do to avoid this happening with Gen Z? So where Gen Z sort of becomes shorthand for just young person, and then it sort of becomes a catch-all for every sort of trend that's observed, um, general, you know, amongst young people. Yeah, I, I think that's, why I go, the thing that I'm interested in is the mindset piece of it, Um, you know, because there's the generation, there's, and like I said before, there's really studying their life stage, which is really important. But then the mindset piece is really interesting, because I think it's not about marketing to, it's about engaging with. And that philosophy is really rooted in, you know, respecting, you know, their, their values, which are, you know, very much rooted in transparency and authenticity and and privacy, um, but it's about for us as, as marketers understanding those opportunities to embed the Gen Z mindset in our own brand philosophies moving forward. So if we're looking at this world is going to change again, and this world is going to change based on this new generation of consumers who are coming up, and how do we to really embed that mindset into um, not just our message but our product and our brand philosophies um, because I think that is where we're going to start to really connect and win over this very elusive and discerning consumer. Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting you pointed out the two versus versus with and um, when in at the Global PR Summit in Miami a couple of weeks ago Paul um, Holmes had made an interesting point about one of the things our industry can do to help that is to sort of retire these marketing, I mean, sorry, these military metaphors that we use to talk about um, our interaction with consumers, you know, are we going to target and blast and, um, and that that's not the language that we need to build relationships. So I wonder if we'll start saying that more frequently as with, with, with Gen Z, if they're going to be a little bit more averse to sort of being talked to in that way by marketers. Yeah, I, they are very smart, and they know when they're being marketing, marketed to and being sold to. But I think, like I said, they while they expect this invention and they expect a, expect a lot from the brands, they don't 
expect perfection every time. And, and I think while some, you know, in my generation, um, we might have been more fearful of an avoided failure. I think Gen Z is much more grounded enough to embrace it. And, I, and the cool thing for us is that we can invite these young Zoomers in and, and take small risks that, you know, with our brands, um, we can let them be part of the process. And I think they want to be part of those small triumphs as well as those really honest and brave failures. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Angela. It was great to get sort of get a primer on Gen Z with you. And, you know, like I said, I mean, this is such a young generation that we're going to be watching how they evolve over the next decade, I guess, over the, as I kind of get into their twenties and enter the workplace, um, and sort of have more and more disposable income. So thanks so much for, for joining us today. And, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again about, about, uh, about Gen Z. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Welcome to the echo chamber. This is Arthi Shaw. I'm an editor here at the Holmes report and today's show should be pretty interesting. We're going to, um, delve into the topic of transmedia storytelling. And I am here with Burghardt Tendrich, or as I call him, BT, um, who is a professor at the Annenberg School um, at University of Southern California, USC. And BT joins us today from Los Angeles. Thanks for joining, BT. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, okay. So, BT, you and I have been talking about transmedia storytelling for, gosh, years now, right? And this is, you said, like, kind of been your stump speech for, for several years now. Maybe let's just go right into like, so why do you feel like, why did you feel necessary to kind of take this champion, this cause within the industry? And I guess as part of that, you can give us a little background in terms of, you know, how you define transmedia storytelling. Yeah, so obviously, public relations has so much changed over the last few years. It has really evolved. It has become a much richer profession or discipline, in my opinion. And really, I mean, when back when I was a practitioner, media relations was really the dominating discipline. And uh, we, uh, as, as public relations folks, um, were really focused almost exclusively on dealing with the media. Now, in this day and age, we increasingly use a combination of, of paid, earned, owned, and shared media, the, the so-called peso model. And if you like, transmedia storytelling is sort of a subset of that, where you um, frame a, a brand or a product, a cause, a person, whatever, um, in, in terms of a story. And you then disperse that central storyline across a variety of different types of media channels. And you do it in a way that is hopefully engaging and that people want to share this information with other people. They want to comment on it. And uh, they, it's really something they're interested in. So if you like, it's a very different model from um, the conventional integrated marketing model, which is at the end of the day, much more of a top-down rather than something I would call an offer for, for online engagement. So we should, I should note that, you know, you, you just put out a book on this topic and, you know, I, I you know, had a, a flip through some of it. And some of it is also based on conversations you and I have had in the past. And I would say that most people in our industry would probably say that that's what, like the, the way that you define transmedia storytelling, that that's what they're engaging in. But the examples that you laid out, for instance, in your book, many of them are not work that's being done by PR agencies. And one of them, actually, I want to reference because um, you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. I was on a panel last week or the week before now, I suppose. Um, 
And I actually reference you and I, I reference the same example that you use in the introduction of, of your book. And that's um, the Beauty Inside campaign that was done by um, Toshiba and, and Intel. And I think 2013 um, or 2012, and then I think they won the Ken Lions in 2013. And um, just a quick summary for those of you who don't know it, it's, um, it's basically um, a, a YouTube, like a series of videos that had you know, um, actors like I think Topher Grace and I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And it was basically revolved around a, a guy named Alex who every day woke up with a different body, but at his core, he was the same person. And that was fine until, you know, he fell in love. And then it sort of went into, um, you know, this, the, the, what you would expect, right? I mean, the, that it's what's inside that matters. And if you think about what Intel does and, you know, processors sit inside of, um, of your machines, that it, you know, the, the parallels there you know, were, were quite clear. But what was unique to me about that campaign was it really tapped into the humanity behind their, their, you know, technology versus, you know, just getting bogged down in kind of the functionality and the speeds and the feeds and all of that, that can get quite dry, right, when you're dealing with processors. Um, so BT, I mean, is why, why are we not seeing PR, the PR industry coming up with stories, like really human stories like this one, more frequently? Yeah, I think honestly, this is what I hear a lot from uh, friends in industry. I think many PR organizations are still stuck in the past. They uh, live in a world that's dominated by media relations. That's what they expect from their PR agencies. And the minute something is more multimedia, more transmedia. This is something that the head of marketing does with a digital agency. So I think PR practitioners, both in-house and agencies, should be confident in claiming this, this peso space for themselves. Let me also uh, talk briefly about the book. So I've written it together with a former graduate student, Jared Williams. And Jared was um, a student, in the first time we taught transmedia branding as a class here at USC Annenberg. And what we're really teaching our students here is if you study PR, you are a multimedia content producer. We teach students to you know, cut and shoot and cut video, do podcasts, what you're doing here right now. Um, of course, to write, but also we teach them um, software development so that they can create simple web properties for their content. So we're taking a much, much broader view of PR than what I still see many organizations do in industry. And to be, you know, and just to kind of give you some context in terms of what we're seeing in the industry is we are, I'm certainly seeing agencies making the investments like you just mentioned, right, and, and sort of in really being multimedia content creators. However, and, and, and you and I, you know, we both, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area and I actually I think you, you do as well. Um, what, what I have noticed specifically in this market in San Francisco is there are a lot of agencies here that still, that, that still rely heavily on traditional PR, traditional, you know, media relations or even influencer relations. And NBT, I don't know if you've seen this as well, but I mean, but it, a lot of the agencies out here don't need necessarily to change because the client base, at least the, a lot of the technology client base, that's still what they expect of their PR agency, right? And you can only evolve as quickly as your clients are, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, if your clients aren't willing to make investments in some of these new areas, or if they're not willing to make those investments with the PR agency, then, you know, the, the agency at some level, they, they can't fund that, right? Um, 
So, I mean, are, are you, and, and I will say that I see that a little bit more out here in San Francisco than I do even in Chicago and in New York and, and some of the industries there. So, I mean, if you, if you own a PR agency, I mean, what, how do you kind of get your client on board to really trust you to do things like, um, you know, a really intense brand storytelling initiative, you know, like say Beauty Inside, or even you think about the Chipotle, the Scarecrow. I mean, that was really, I mean, I, I'm guessing you would also count that as an example of, of transmedia storytelling. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the Scarecrow is another case study that we use in our book. It absolutely is, is transmedia uh, storytelling. To answer your question, yeah, you know, if you're running a successful PR agency and the client keeps asking for more media relations and you're able to produce it, you know, why change? It's, it's a comfortable place to sit in. I would argue um, time's running out, though, and uh, that with new generations of, of heads of communication, heads of PR coming in, um, they may want and they will want you to take a much broader view um, into the media uh, channels that are available to you. What we do see, though, and it's rather interesting, is that PR agencies, whenever they can, they try to pitch for budgets that would otherwise go to advertising agencies or so-called digital agencies. I don't know exactly what a digital agency is anymore in this day and age. And I would argue that many PR uh, agencies that are looking forward-looking and that have these multimedia skills, these storytelling skills, and can do truly strategic work, that they should go for the big budgets that the CMOs hold for much broader campaigns. Yeah, and, and we and and you know we we've seen some agencies really successfully go after some of those budgets and and execute on them. You know, you know, from you know idea uh, generation all the way to execution. Um, although you know, I I also have many conversations with agencies. You know, when when I'll say something like, oh, you know, have you looked at? I'm just going to go back to the Beauty Inside campaign, and I'll actually put a link at the bottom of this podcast because there's a nice case study on online for that, so people can actually get some more background on that. Um, you know, and, and the agency owner will say, look, I can't make an investment in that. And that's not what we're trying to be because there are other agencies. There are other people who can produce video of that caliber that's in, that can secure, you know, talent of that caliber that we just simply can't do. So why don't we just focus on doing what we do best? And that's, you know, dealing with the sphere, you know, sphere of influencers. And, you know, if we have a client that wants something like that, you know, sure, we can manage that project, but we can't execute on it internally. And, and I still, you know, depending on the size, you know, the bigger agencies, I don't hear this as much, but depending on the size of the agency, I'm, I hear that, you know, some frequency still. Yeah. And frankly, I think that's a little bit of an outdated view of the world. You know, you would hire PR talent based on their writing skills, maybe based on their um, um, media relations skills or, or ability to build relationships with journalists. That's all good. And that will continue to be valuable. But frankly, it's only going to be one part of the job description of uh, mainstream public relations professionals in the future. I'm not saying everybody will be a complete expert in, in producing high-quality video. But they will have experience with it. They will know enough. And they will be able within their network to get amazing video work done or, or software development done. It's really time for public relations to make this shift from being media relations centric to being media agnostic. So it's at the end of the day, these are all just delivery channels, or I would call them engagement cha channels. And you need to do research to find out what types of channels 
your audiences live on. And then you essentially need to design program that puts a quality content that you offer up to those individuals on their channel of choice, not on yours. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I think BT, I think I talked to you about this when we, when we last spoke was that I was actually recently talking to someone on the client side and, um, you know, and this person came from, from, from uh, a data analytics uh, company. And even this person told me that, that even though they, even though she is at a, you know, a company that would be classified as, you know, data, you know, in the data analytics space, that internally she's still evaluated against impressions and she's still evaluated, you know, evaluated against, you know, what, what kind of news coverage are you drumming up? And because of that, she, the pressure that she puts on her agency is very much around, you know, what's the latest news story. And, and she said, even though the agency comes to her with creative storytelling ideas and, you know, that are truly channel agnostic that can live across, um, you know, multiple platforms, that because some of the pressure she's still feeling internally is still around coverage, that that's ultimately what what she expects her agency to deliver, and and I, I mean I know that's a problem that that you know like you said part of it will will just be a time thing. I mean as people become as we have more and more enlightened people sort of in the marketing suite, you know, coming in and taking over communications programs, that we'll see a change there. But but I do want to talk a little bit about measurement and evaluating this type of content. Um, you know, you've been a judge in, in our Sabre Awards competitions and you've seen that we still get a, a, a number of entries that are still on the results section. They stop at impressions. That's as far as they go. And, and, you know, I've been in many panels in which judges have gotten, you know, exasperated by that. And I like that you point out, like, for instance, with the Old Spice campaign, which I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with, um, that it actually impacted sales. I think you mentioned in the book that I think it was a 27% year by year increase in sales. Now you also mentioned, you know, the impressions, I think it was like 2 billion plus impressions and video views and, and all of that. But I mean, do you think that transmedia storytelling opens up the door for more robust and sophisticated measurement? I wish, I think measurement at the end of the day is difficult um, it can be done. If you do it right, it takes time and budget. And many internal PR organizations are not um, ready to make that kind of investment. For them, it's easier to count the clips or the impressions or even um, advertising equivalency, which obviously is, is completely inadequate as a measurement tool. So there's frequently not the commitment to, to do research upfront to gain insight, actionable insight and build real strategies and to do research after the fact in order to get really good measurement. In the case of the Old Spice campaign, it was just um, really easy. The only major change they had made was this hilariously funny um, uh, campaign, um, smell like a man men or the men your men could smell like that was the only change that was made and then you could fairly easily say okay with everything else being equal our sales went up 27 percent that must be the reason so it was easy to establish a causal relationship there but it's not if you have a very broad marketing and pr mix and if you run promotions etc if if you then want to know what what needle to what degree has your PR program um, moved the needle? You have to do very specific studies, and that costs money. Yeah, you know, it's funny, because yeah, when I do talk to people on the flip side of that, you know, they'll, they'll say that, 
you know, as communications and marketing folks become more sophisticated around sort of transmedia storytelling, um, that, you know, at the same time, CEOs and CFOs are becoming much more sophisticated around what they're demanding from their marketing programs, right? Because a lot of the, the, the types of, I mean, you know, while you're not doing these big mass media advertising spends and, and you know, like for the for the example of Chipotle, and I think with Old Spice as well, right? I mean, I mean, Old Spice didn't have to do a big Super Bowl buy in order to get that, um, to, you know, to get that kind of virality, I guess. I hate that word, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, but same thing with Chipotle, right? I mean, they did a very modest, I believe there was a very modest paid buy around the Scarecrow, but most of it was, you know, much more organic. I mean, there was a, an earned media component and, and as well, but, but, but I wonder, you know, as, you know, if, if you're, if you're telling your client, hey, you know, I would like you to invest in, in this more, much more sophisticated, high quality level of storytelling, but, you know, ultimately the, the only, you know, the only metrics I can use to give you is like how many, you know, YouTube sub- subscribers you get. I just wonder if there'll be pushback around that. Um, and, and there may be, there may be. Um, interesting, you mentioned the, the Super Bowl ad. What, what Old Spice did was really, um, extremely creative they released the video which is expensive to produce i'm sure but they released it on youtube the week before the 2010 super bowl and basically then conducted good old media relations calling up reporters that were um, about to preview and talk about um, super bowl ads because of course many of the real super bowl ads had also been released on youtube for that very reason Um, but they were the ones who kind of stole the super bowl attention Mm -hmm and generated this incredible media impact um, just through media relations at the right time. What made that campaign trends in media, though, was when, um, and that wasn't originally part of the plan, to to my knowledge, it was so much social media came in. I mean, this video created so much what we would call spreadability rather than virality. Um, and uh, so much interest and, and comment, in particular on Twitter. This is where you have the transmedia aspect. You jump from, from YouTube to Twitter and from earned media uh, as well. Um, and then they decided to do a response campaign where they basically hired the actor um, Isaiah Mustafa to, to stand in a bathtub with a towel wrapped around him. And he basically answered on YouTube questions and comments that had come in via Twitter. You know, and that uh, in itself then created a storm of of tweets, of earned coverage, um, and um, basically, and also imitations. There was a lot of copying, which I thought was very cool, rather than being worried about uh, people just copying their um, brand and 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 and, and so sort of their their yeah, really their look and feel. Um, it almost seems like. Old Spice was encouraging people to do it because it just added to this incredibly rich conversation on the web that would just continue to feed itself and grow. So I thought that was really well done. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think um, it's been like, what, five years later? And I mean, I still hear that's still oftentimes held up as a a really, really good example of the word transmedia isn't always used, but I mean, just kind of a multi-channel sort of marketing initiative that. um, okay. so two follow up questions on that. The first would be um, just looking at, you mentioned, um, you know, some parodies and things like that. Well, because it is so easy to create content these days in some ways, I mean, you know, using, um, there's just a lot of technology out there, so you can produce things that are 
that look, you know, like animations and things like that easier than you could in the past. And what, what yes. that's done is it's made it easier, right, to also create parodies. I mean, right after the Chipotle video came out, um, you know, of course, there was that parody that I, I don't, I haven't actually checked to see, compare the views that I, uh, both of them have gotten, but it was widely circulated. Um, I guess we should talk for a minute about, and, and this is, and now we're going more into like, you know, if you're willing to go out there and take a risk around your brand, but if you're willing to tell a really, you know, a brand story that really resonates with people, you know, like the Chipotle did, um, like the, um, like the Old Spice one did, you know, and they both resonated in different ways. I mean, I mean, I mean, I suppose your brands, they have to be prepared for, for some kind of um, parody. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so on Scarecrow, it was funny or die. They produced a very funny, very effective critique, an ethical critique of the Chipotle um, Scarecrow, basically alleging that uh, they were sort of overpromising in terms of you know being organic, being um, vegetarian than what they really are or were at the time. So it was really a form of social critique, which was done using humor. Um, the answer to, oh my gosh, what do I do if people start making brand, change my messaging? To me, the answer is, you have lost control. If you think brands ever had control, now in the age of multimedia and social media and transmedia, you've completely lost control, right? And you have basically to embrace it. Fighting is not necessarily the best strategy. One of the cases that we use in our transmedia um, class was Mad Men. So back when Mad Men first came out several years ago, um, people started assuming the personalities of the Don Drapers and the, the Peggies and the other um, characters. They used their images in their Twitter handles and just started tweeting in character. And in some cases, there were several competing characters, several um, Don Drapers and whatnot. Um, and AMC got really upset about it and issued um, season desists and, and put pressure on Twitter to shut them down because they wanted to keep the control of their brands. And the way we look at this is this is really a silly thing to do because if anything, it really helps you just achieve a spreadability factor for your content and just make people more crazy about the show, create more fans, and really extend the conversation. So I thought they sort of did the exact opposite of what would have been in their best interest. Oh, yeah. No, actually, I remember when, when that was, when everyone had sort of their avatars like that. And I um, actually didn't know that that was actually, they tried to shut that down. Um, so, okay, going back then, and you mentioned like with um, the, the Old Spice campaign, as well, that there was sort of an old-fashioned media relations push, um, you, you know, a week before the Super Bowl, as a lot of reporters were looking to cover sort of the advertising around around the game. So, what what that immediately made me think of, and this doesn't happen in all cases, but I have still seen examples of this, right? Where that's where the PR agency comes in, right? I mean, so the digital firm, the creative shop, whoever it is, they handle, you know, the the idea that the big idea comes from in the whole story, the, the narrative. The production, all of that happens there. And then the PR agency gets called in when they're like, okay, we have this, you know, we think it's going to be big. Can you go out and see this with the right influencers? And is that what you're still seeing when, when you looked at these case studies? Was that that was when the PR agency came in, not when it, not and actually kind of building the, the narrative? So in the case of Old Spice, I know as a fact that that's exactly how it went. And, and Payne PR was the PR agency that promoted 
the uh, the work to the media and achieved tremendous um, success. In effect, won several awards for the media relations component of Old Spice. The Old Spice campaign itself was done by Whedon and Kennedy. So yes, so there is this split. Um, Looking at the other case studies in our book, um, having not been there, having not been part of the campaign, it's hard to say who did exactly what. But I would assume you're right. In, in most cases, there is probably still that, that split up between the creative, the digital, and, and the PR agencies. We, as you referenced earlier, some of the larger ones, and you know, I could certainly name some larger agencies, have really bridged that gap and they have taken a completely channel agnostic approach and they are able and they have the, the, the capabilities and also the brands to probably sell those campaigns um, end to end and don't have to rely on um, competing or, or not competing uh, PR agencies or, or digital agencies. They, they, can, they can take the whole thing themselves. Yeah, it's like and one of the things actually that you also mentioned is, you know, talking about the entertainment industry and how they're frequently kind of an early adopter in this regard. And I know you were kind of mentioning more like the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and also I've heard always, you know, Lego, um, the Lego movies, like a, a great example of, um, of transmedia storytelling or at least of like really smart branded content, if nothing else. But it made me actually also think about like the role that talent plays in a lot of these, um, the videos that, that really seem to um, take off, you know, one of them, like going back to Old Spice, you know, obviously the Intel one, I mean, it had, you know, they weren't, they're not like A-list actors, but they had, you know, recognizable faces in it. And then of course the Chipotle, right? I mean, you had Fiona Apple's voice. Um, and in one of them you had, well, not the Scarecrow, but the one actually before it was the Coldplay song, The Scientist with, you know, sung by Willie Nelson. Correct. And, and, you know, the story that I've always heard, because, you know, CAA was actually, their marketing arm was behind the, the Chipotle videos, um, was that, you know, CAA, given, you know, what their, what their main line of work is, I mean, they're the world's largest talent agency, that they have, you know, when you have the marketing team sitting around and saying, oh my gosh, you know, we'd really love to have the Coldplay song. You know, if you were at any other agency, everybody would have to look around and be like, all right, well, how do we even go about doing that? Whereas at CAA, you go down the hall, and I, from what I understand, at the time they represented, I don't know if they still do, but at the time they represented Coldplay's manager. So they just go down the hall and Willie Nelson, and they so they go to the agent, and they're like, hey, you know, this is what we'd like to do. Can you get us in touch with the right people? So, um, so then, you know, last year, right, Edelman did a did a joint venture with, or I guess a partnership, I don't know if it's a joint venture, it's actually a partnership with United talent agency. And I actually, when, when that happened, I thought more about that CAA example. And I wondered, is this something that Edelman wants to be able to tap into, you know, some of these, you know, into this vast pool of talent to help with their, with their brand content? Because it does seem like you can't really ignore the importance of talent when you're putting together, um, you know, storytelling like Old Spice, Intel, or Chipotle. Yeah, I mean, um, I, would agree with you that Edelman seems to be very advanced in its thinking and its practice of multi or transmedia um, work, and also having again the scope, the size, the brands to to pull in powerful partners as needed. So in that regard, I think they're they're definitely well positioned, and I think some other large agencies are as well. Um, what, what's interesting here, though, so, so to a degree. It, then raises this almost academic question, what's marketing, what's PR, what's digital, what's advertising? And at the end of the day, to me, these are all labels. Um, what I think is, is important to remember is, um, as a somebody with a public relations focus, you are used to negotiating relationships 
whether it's relationships with journalists or now in the day of, of the social web, increasingly relationships with anybody who can talk back to you, which of course is potentially anybody, right? And I think that ability to kind of um, understand culture, read culture, see where people's heads are at, I think that is a very important aptitude or skill set that is required in, in order to have successful campaigns that do not backfire at you. And we have every day we see um, campaigns, many of these uh, ill-advised sort of Twitter campaigns uh, where, where companies or even the NYPD thinks, here's a cool idea, and suddenly um, the exact opposite of the intended consequence kicks in and people use a particular hashtag to voice, in the case of NYPD, your frustration with uh, um, perceived police brutality, etc. Right? So the public, public relations practitioners have the ability to negotiate relationships, to understand them uh, really well. And that's why I think uh, PR has a little bit of a natural seat at the table here and should not too easily um, uh, retreat and, uh, and, and hand uh, the, the transmedia world or the PESO world to advertising or digital. So with that in mind, I mean, so if you're listening to this and you are, you know, either at an agency or in-house, I mean, what is something that, what is something that, you know, somebody could incorporate today or this week to make their, either their department or make their agency or, you know, their, their work on a specific account more transmedia friendly? Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. And I would say, um, whatever you're working on today, let's assume you're trying to promote or communicate something to somebody, as a first step, don't start with the channel. Don't assume you have to write a news release or you have to write a blog post or you have to pitch this to a particular reporter. Start thinking about the audience that you're trying to reach. Start thinking about what takeaway you want that audience to have. Do whatever research is necessary and then figure out what is indeed the best channel to approach them with and what is the best way to phrase that story. Well said. <laughs> well, VT, it's always a pleasure um, to, to chat with you. Uh, I think this is something that uh, this topic is, uh, we've been talking about it for years and I have a feeling we'll probably be talking about it for more, many more years. So I'm sure we'll have you back on the show at some point to kind of revisit this and, and, and go at it from, from even more angles. So thanks again. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Ari. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 